Hello, everyone. Today's guest, Nina Rao, is a kirtan artist, so I thought it would be nice to preface and close today's interview with tracks from Nina's album, Antarayami. The first one that we'll listen to before the interview is Baja Govindam, and then the second, which will close the interview today, will be a rendition of the Hanuman Chalisa, and we actually talk about the Hanuman Chalisa in today's interview, so I thought it would be nice to, to give it a listen. You can listen to the whole album Antarayami on Spotify, and of course you can find it on iTunes, and uh, listen in f- towards the end of the interview when Nina mentions uh, her second album, which she'll be releasing shortly. So without further ado, here's Baja Govindam by Nina Rao.
Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Nina Rao. Nina Rao learned traditional chants called bhajans from her grandfather in a village in South India when she was nine years old. The chants quietly stayed with her until she rediscovered chanting with Krishna Das in New York in 1996. Her childhood was spent living in and moving between many countries around the world. And when she settled in New York, her working life began in the banking world, switched to organizing and leading photographic wildlife safaris in Africa and India, and now for many years is Krishnadas' business manager and assistant. Nina tours with Krishnadas, playing cymbals and singing with him, and was honored in 2013 to accompany him at the Grammy Awards webcast performance. In 2007, she recorded the track Nina Chalisa on Krishnadas' CD, Flow of Grace, chanting the Hanuman Chalisa. In January 2013, she released her debut album, Antarayami, Knower of All Hearts. The double CD includes devotional kirtan, bhajan, and a variety of Hanuman Chalisa melodies, including a duet with Krishna Das. Nina regularly leads kirtan, chanting of the Hanuman Chalisa, and sings for yoga classes in her hometown of Brooklyn, New York, and beyond. So with that, hello, Nina. Hey, Jacob. It's really nice, <laughs> nice to, see to see you. you. Yes. Yes, it is. So, um, you know, I, I was just listening actually before we started this interview today. I was listening to Antarayami, um, your debut album, which is a really beautiful album for those that are that are out there listening who haven't listened to it. It really is very beautiful. And and listening to it really affirmed or reminded me of just kind of the clarifying and grounding nature of, of listening to kirtan, listening to chanting, you know, let alone chanting it along. So before we talk a little bit about kind of kirtan and chanting in general, which has really been, you know, your lifelong passion, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of what you what led you to the practice um, of kirtan. And of course, this is also um, more or less your career now as well. Is, is is leading this uh, kirtan chanting. So, so can you talk a little bit about the story of your practice and what moved you in the direction uh, that you're now in? Sure. Um, it's all an accident, <laughs> really. It always is, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, in the sense that you know, I, I am from India. And though I spend a lot of my, uh, after the first 10, 20 years of my life, I've not really been living there at all. But when I did live there as a child, for certain periods of time, we would visit my grandfather, as you read in the bio there. Um, And I didn't know, but for the longest time, you know, I just saw my grandfather as a retired engineer and as my grandfather. Yeah. But there was a harmonium in his home, and I always was interested in music, but I never took lessons in music, and um, somehow it never really worked out that way. I'm not sure why. I guess I didn't think I was that musical or something. Mm. Um, but I liked playing around on his harmonium, and I would play, you know, the songs we learned in school, that kind of thing. <laughs> and... Once he's, he's, I asked him, I said, why don't you play what you know? Mm. You know, what do you play on this? And he said, well, I'll do it as long as you sing along with me. So I said, okay. I mean, I was very young then, you know, so I gathered my sisters and my cousins. And he just got on there and started playing the most beautiful bhajans. Like when I, I still have recordings of them, which is what's amazing. Oh, that is amazing. And this... It was literally like opening into another dimension. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt for me. And I, I recall that feeling as a child, too. I mean, now I can put words to it. But at the time, it was sort of like, you know, you read a fairy tale or a, 
a fantasy story or something and you know you kind of can lift yourself into something else that's how it felt when i heard that and you know i didn't know the words i'd never heard these chants before but i knew that i loved the way in which he was singing and also the community feeling of doing it together yeah because at and on this very same trip he had what's called a satsang at his house where a group of people come together to do practice and to discuss you know just the nature of the heart and also texts and stuff like this and what i loved was it was it was beautiful he set up an altar in their big living room that they had and all the kids the p- grandparents parents came and food was offered at the altar and everyone sat and different people were leading the kirtan you know my grandfather led because he was the one who was sort of really proficient in it mm-hmm. but even young girls without any musical accompaniment they just knew the bhajans and they would sing and i thought wow what a great thing and it didn't seem like a great thing to anybody else they were just doing it that's mm-hmm. what they do and then a beautiful feast was served afterwards for everybody and that was the event and it didn't really happen again after that for many years because my parents moved to the west and you know in there they wanted us to have exposure to all the good things in the west uh you know in terms of career and so forth so we didn't really have that going on in our house but so that was it it remained dormant but you know it it really got into me i absorbed it on a cellular level and i really mm-hmm. think i did because many years later when i moved to new york and i was doing all kinds of stuff on wall street and it was uh you know your young 20s i mean you might know that it's closer to you than it is to me these days but um i didn't have much time for anything else but i did have a burnout at at some point mm-hmm. with what i was doing and i started taking yoga classes and when i took the yoga classes i would hear some of the chants that the teachers you know there wasn't a lot back then really yeah. in terms of variety like there is now this was back in 96 and I remember thinking that I loved the way it sounded. One of the early ones I heard was Wah cuz she was singing, you know, Kundalini chants for a while and mm-hmm. that's what was being played and so on. And anyway, my yoga teacher then started playing No, I hadn't heard him yet. She um invited me to come to a yoga retreat, which was again like a, a new thing for me. It's like yoga retreat. Okay, all weekend, know, let's do this. <laughs> I know. And now and now they're left, right and center. You can't you can't and escape them. And all over them. the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's crazy. I'm leading them now. Who knew? Amazing. So uh so I would go to this yoga retreat and on the schedule it said, you know, satsang with Krishna Das. Mm. So I thought he was going to be a failed Indian musician and I just <laughs> I I really did. I said this to my friend and she'll remember this too. So I said to her, I'm going to sit in the back of the room. I was super tired. I just come back jet lag from some trip in Africa or something, who knows. And um so she said, "Okay." So he walks in and he was sort of very unassuming in his casual way as he is now also you know yeah yeah and walked in and sat down with his drummer very simple no amplification nothing and i just remember hearing him sing shri ram jai ram mm-hmm. and then i don't remember anything from the evening other than you know 3 hours later i was sitting right in front of him mm-hmm. and i knew i felt then when i think about it now and i reflect back on it i felt then the same feeling that i had as a child when i was chanting with my grandfather and family 
that it, I had entered a new space or a space that was always there, but I didn't have access to. And the chanting was what was taking me to that space, mm. an internal space. It wasn't an outside one. And I happened to be sharing it with everyone in the room. It was such a beautiful thing. And, you know, I, I wanted to continue to stay and do that as much as possible. So after the, I got to know him over the weekend and talk, you know, asked him questions because it was very heart opening for me. I mean, I, I'd never had that kind of experience. And now when you go for chanting, you might see people have, you know, you can brings up a lot of emotions and kind of cracks you open yeah. in a way. And I, I found out that he was singing every Monday night in, in New York City at Jiva Mukti. So I started to go. And it became just what I wanted to do all the time. Mm. And uh, we were friends. And as he started to travel, um, you know, I helped him set up his initial business things. Like I, I made his first website for him, <laughs> his first email address. And it was part of my, my safari website, of all things, which was wildindia.com. So I had wildindia.com slash Krishnadas. That's what it used to be <laughs> back then. Um, and then, you know, I happened to learn one drum beat from a drummer who, because he didn't have like a band per se. He just, yeah. well, whoever came, came. Um, so then I started to travel with him a little bit on weekends. And I also realized that I wanted to chant by myself. So I asked him about that. And he said, yeah, just, you know, he gave me a harmonium, which I still have. And I learned to just kind of figure out chants on my own. And some of the old stuff that I used to sing with my grandfather came back to me. But what also started to happen was just I, I, I got very interested in the Hanuman Chalisa from, from listening to his first album, which was One Track Heart. And I wanted to learn it. It really, he had beautiful liner notes, which had the translation of the Hanuman Chalisa. But every time I heard it, it really resonated with me. Mm. So as a surprise for his 50th birthday, there was a big party being thrown for him. I, um, me and a couple of friends, we decided to learn the Hanuman Chalisa. He didn't sing it that much that those days in, in public with people. Right. Because it's so complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so we decided to learn it and sing it for him, which we did for the, at the party. But it was a good thing I did because the next thing that happened was I went to India pretty soon after that to Neem Karoli Baba's temples. Um, and that is a main practice there. So I was glad that I had learned it because our job when we went there was sing the Hanuman Chalisa. So that's what I did. Mm. So the, the practice of the chant kind of just as soon as I heard it, I, it's sort of like when you take a yoga class for the first time and you realize how the breath affects you, how it brings you to one point, also how you feel in your body. Um, and then, you know, it becomes what you do. You kind of realize that that's what makes you feel well. And it did make me feel well, which doesn't mean that, you know, suddenly very happy all the time. It wasn't <laughs> like that. But what it started to do, and I felt it was gave me this slowly, uh, this capacity to, to build some sort of awareness inside myself of what was going on. So I wasn't necessarily always only just reacting and making all my decisions based on my reactions, but I started to understand that I could step back just a little bit and be witness to what was going on. Mm. And 
I didn't understand all this, of course, at the time, and I talked with Krishnadas a lot about it, and we discussed practice and, you know, any kind of practice, whether we do mindfulness meditation or we do pranayama, we do whatever it might be. It's all meant to give us that ability to sit in our own hearts that way mm. and, you know, and give us strength to deal with the stuff that comes to us. Yeah, so that's interesting because I actually wanted to ask you about that. You know, do you, when you're describing this really beautiful space that you sink into in chanting, is this, you know, do you see this as qualitatively the same as the kind of space that you enter in meditation? Like, is chanting just another form of meditation or is there something specific that's going on? Well, I think that all practices lead us to that space Mm -hmm. and the space being one where we can actually rest in what they describe as our true nature, Mm -hmm. our true nature, a place where um, there's a sense of peace and well-being, a sense of equanimity where it doesn't mean that the things that are happening in your life stop happening. I mean, certain things will because our reactions are different to them. So it creates different actions and reactions further from there. But the, the idea that what we're thinking is the way things are, mm-hmm. like our thoughts and how they pull us and they create emotions in us that, run, that pull us away and we run away with them. And we can go into a, you know, a downward spiral or we can get really angry or feel particularly sad as if this moment will never pass and we're just going to stay this way and we're going to feel like this forever. You start to create a little space around that and see and have a slightly different perspective that, you know, this is just what our, our mind is telling us based on the thoughts that are coming through. I don't know where thoughts come from. <laughs> we seem to be born with them. Yeah. Although, I don't know, we have to ask a baby to know. But, um, and, you know, if you think about it, if you think about it, we are thinking all the time. There's stuff coming through always. And what was happening in the chanting was just for a moment when the thoughts came back, you would realize that they weren't there for just a second. And that space is the space where one can feel at ease. And I think that the more practice, whatever the practice might be, you know, it's meditation as well, it gets you here here where there isn't the clutter of things, you know, of, of the thoughts that are pulling us away all the time. But with the chanting, now I'm not saying one is better than the other, mm-hmm. but they, they say that, first of all, it's easier for me to do, which is why I like <laughs> to do it. It's fun. Yeah. I like the music around it. Um, I love the fact that, and you know, Krishna has talked about it this way where, and I don't think about it this way, but he, this was sort of what he says. He said, you know, our thoughts are in the language that we speak, which in, in, in this world is English. And also for me, I grew up speaking English. But the chants that we're singing are not. Mm-hmm. So here we are dedicating ourselves to, to using those phrases, and we don't, there can't be any thoughts attached to them. They're, they're, you know, so they don't come with baggage already. Yeah which is not to say that there aren't good practices using the English language. I'm just saying this was something that he described. Um, The other thing is they also say that the names that we're chanting, 
These are divine names. They're names that have been transmitted from rishis, seers, people who had reached a higher plane of consciousness, and they have shared this with us. So the understanding is that the nature of these names are sacred, and they have the power to change us from from the inside, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a way in which we can, so you said, as you were saying, you know, purifying in a certain way. It clears the space, so that it must have a power of its own. Yeah. So in that sense, it's different from meditation because you have this this thing that you're using and is working with us. So long as you use it, we have to repeat the names, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in there, there's a transformative power. Mm. So when you were describing um, the chanting bringing you to a space within yourself and then reflecting on the fact that, you know, bhajans are about chanting the names of the divine in repetition, it, do you understand the divine to be something within yourself or is it that you're creating a space within yourself th- so that you can connect to that divinity? So what's the, what's the relationship there between that inner space and the divine? <clears throat> I wish I knew the absolute answer to that, because yeah. if you ask me, uh, what is God? That's yeah. a difficult question too. If we if we want to say that what's divine it equates to the word God, yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Yeah. What I do understand though, is and this is what when I think back on that moment when I first heard the chanting, and also all of us. You know, you think back at any time in your life, isn't there, aren't there moments? It could be anything. It could be when you see, when you go out in nature. It could be some particular experience you have. You feel connected. What are we feeling connected to? It, it's something that makes us feel that we belong, we're a part of. Mm-hmm. So if we want to consider the divine space as the one where we have a sense of well-being. Some people describe it as the space of love, you know, with a capital L. Yeah. Um, that's good for me. Mm-hmm. But I also realize that in my tradition, you know, just because of my genetics and the, the way I was raised, and you know, which that doesn't even have to be the case because... There are so many people who aren't raised that way, and, you know, we still get attracted to certain kinds of practices because who knows from which life we have had some past experience. But um, I find that the the use of the mantra and the names of God, as they call it in India, like Ram, Lakshman, Sita, all the names of the goddess, Krishna, uh, they draw me in, in a way. I, I, they, they resonate with me. I love them. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as a kid, when I when I went to Catholic schools a lot, when we traveled abroad, and I always wanted to go to mass with the Catholic kids because we would have chapels in the school, and I loved singing all the hymns. I loved that feeling of devotion, and I realized that we don't get to have that a lot unless we're talking about romantic love or something. Yeah. Um, the feeling of devotion, devotion for something sacred, something that connects all of us together and drops the walls, that to me feels divine. Mm -hmm. And so there's a space that's holding us. How do we find, how do we get there? And the only way we know that it's there is because we all have some experience of it. Otherwise, why would we be doing this? You know, somebody can tell you, you know, well, there's God out there. But unless you have a feeling of what that is, 
why would you even turn in that direction? Mm -hmm. But we all do. Those of us who are here and trying to do some practice and trying to feel better. So I would say when I think about it is at this stage of my life, because I don't know any better, the purpose of doing this practice is connecting with that spirit, that spirit that's inside me and that's inside you and everybody. And then where we all, where it doesn't feel like we're separate. Mm. Mm. That's how it seems to me. Yeah, that's a really beautiful description. I also like the way you were sort of um, touching on the idea that, you know, the question of God is is something specific and you're not quite sure how to answer that question. But, but then, and, and what it made me think about was something that I saw recently where, you know, someone was saying that even to to use the word God or, or to try to reduce, because in the Indian, you know, in the Sanskrit language, there are so many names for God. Yeah. There are so many ways of, you know, vibrating that divine potency. And then to kind of push it all into one word called God is to yeah. somehow limit it in a kind of way. Mm. And, 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 and that's something that I think is so beautiful is just how multifarious, how diverse, you know, the possibility of experiencing that divinity is through the name, the many names of the divine. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, so I want to ask you a question, you know, we're sort of already talking about this, but I had this sort of moment um, a while ago where I brought a friend of mine to the Bhakti Center and they were chanting and and I hadn't sort of, you know, prepared him at all. And, 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 you know, he was, um, the way that he had experienced it was that he came out of it and he he was he sort of asked a question he was like so are they all just kind of brainwashing is it like you know is it is it is it just that they're chanting it over and over and over like the repetition of it to him seemed almost like a a kind of drone like experience and i remember thinking you know i i thought the word, using the word brainwash was kind of interesting because you know, it can sort of mean two different things, right? Brainwashing as in, you know, yes. you're kind of becoming, you're, you're forcing something out that's bad, but then washing the brain as a kind of, you know, purifying experience. So, um, so you know, for someone that is that walks into a kirtan experience, doesn't have an immediate open-hearted um, experience as you, as you had, you know, yeah. how do you prepare someone to understand what it is that's going on? And I know we're, again, we're already sort of talking about this, but how would you describe kind of the theory of, of what's happening in a way that maybe would make them a little more open-minded to the experience? And the, the reason I'm asking that is because I think that there are just many people who don't get it, you know, who may be listening to this podcast. They don't live in major cities where kirtans are available. So, you know, what is it that's happening? Um, just to kind of go a little deeper into that conversation. Well, in the chanting tradition, uh, as you know, as we do it in India, there are a couple of ways in which it can happen. So the repetition, as you're talking about, is the call and response format of kirtan, right? So two things are going on there. Um, the leader is singing a phrase and then everybody in the room is responding. Um, so one of the things that we talked about before is that we're actually repeating, and whether you want to believe it or not, some of us do, that they have a purifying power, these yeah. names. Yeah. Okay, so some people feel it instantly. They, they're hearing it. Even if they're not chanting, you hear it on the radio. And one of the things we did was, um, for Krishnadas, we created a channel on Sirius XM radio called Krishnadas Yoga Radio, and it's all chanting. And there, we've received many emails from people who just have Sirius XM radio and happen to 
to just go through that channel and they started to hear these chants of like what is that nobody told them anything but they had that experience yeah. you know um i think it's important also that like i said before like you don't know if something's going to if you want to go you. down a road unless yeah. you have that experience so maybe it's not for everybody yeah. you know um but and also there's a lot of resistance because of cults and things like this yes, and people yes. have an idea that um it, there's brainwashing going on um and to some degree there is brainwashing going on because we are trying to clear out some clutter there yeah, yeah. you know um but the point of the repetition really is again like in the west we can talk about how the fact that we don't know what the meaning of those words are so there aren't any thoughts associated with it so we just dedicating ourselves to something else something that's in the unknown but maybe feels okay and doesn't come with a lot of baggage with it the other thing is is that the whole practice now when i you know when we were talking about me getting into another space doesn't mean that for the full 3 hours i'm <laughs> yeah i'm out there and it's not at all like that it's not all like that we're lucky if we feel like that for one minute but you have to do all that practice to even get in there for a second you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the whole rest of the time is spent repeating the chant and you do it over and over again and the idea is that as the thoughts come and they go you let them come and go but don't let them grab you and you don't grab onto them and as soon as you realize that you've been thinking about something you say okay i'm going to come back to the chant again so you keep coming back and sharon salzberg talks about this a lot too when she talks about her loving kindness meditation practice she talks about the biggest moment of the practice is when you realize that your thoughts have come through and you come back to the meditation again to what you know the phrases as they do in loving kindness meditation mm. so it's just the practice is dedicating yourself to the practice and that itself that intention that itself is going to change you mm-hmm. as long as you adopt it as a regular d- discipline because this is the thing with this it has to be a practice mm. if you want it to really if there's something that you want to make better for yourself mm. it has to be sort of done regularly so i mean i just know go ahead oh i was just going to ask um wh- you know you're mentioning that the just the intention is is what changes starts to shift things and and yeah. um you know you'd mentioned before that the that this practice has has cultivated cultivated a kind of flexibility in your own mind but is there anything else that you want to share as far as like um in your own life what has shifted as a result of you know in the years that you've been doing this practice like things that you've noticed uh, in terms of either your own personality or like those people around you that you have seen positively affected or 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 transformed in some way do you want to share a little bit of that yeah i mean there are a couple of things that happen when you chant with people first yeah. of all um is that you develop a satsang mm-hmm. or a, a or a community of people who are trying to do the same thing trying to 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 find a way to feel better in a good way and to open their hearts and to quiet the mind so the moment you do that and you when you're with a bunch of people and you know as they say in the buddhist tradition like one of the biggest things is the buddha the dharma and the sangha these are the three things that are most important for us on our on our path sangha is the is the people that you hang out with yeah so the moment you start doing that kind of chanting and you're hanging out with people who are doing the same thing you create a refuge for yourself you also have a mirror 
because you know you're gonna they're, they're, you're gonna have people who are going to reflect a lot of what how you are. Yeah. So you can see yourself better, which is the case in, in in with anybody you meet, whether it's the supermarket cashier or whoever. Mm-hmm. It's a reflection of yourself. Um, but for me, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. Um, I feel it was good for me to find a practice. I realized that I really needed a practice in order for, it's okay to think about things and how you want your life to change, but it's very easy to get stuck in a place. Yes. And if you, if you have the faith that this is going to be good for you and you just start, it has changed for me. I mean, I know that, I know that my reactive behavior has changed a lot. Mm. You know, I, I had, I have a short fuse in general, <laughs> but it's much less short than it used to be. Um, and I have a lot, I've, I was, I've been able to see that, you know, everything is not personal. Yeah. What's going on has nothing to do with me. It's just going on. Mm-hmm. And my part is to figure out how best I can receive that that's going on. And do I have to react and do I have to react at all or just be witness to it? And just it's given me a floor to stand on and to to see what's going on. Let it happen. Let it go through me. Get the best of it. Let go of the worst of it and move on and understand that people are just people and everybody wants to be happy and everyone just wants what they want. Mm -hmm. And um, it doesn't mean that. You have to be a victim of any particular situation and the doer of everything. Yeah. Wow, that was a really beautiful explanation. So um, so now I want to shift a little bit to talk about, you know, you started at some point to not just do um, call and response kirtan, but to chant the Hanuman Chalisa. So what was it specifically about the Hanuman Chalisa that captured you? Like, why did you shift to start to practice that? I know that you had listened to Krishna Das, and, 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 but what was it, how, do, how does chanting long litany texts like the Hanuman Chalisa differ from <clears throat> more traditional kind of call and response kirtan? Yeah. Um... Well, a couple of different things. You know, I was drawn to the Hanuman Chalisa simply by the sound of it, yeah. literally. Yeah. Just by hearing it, it it had that kind of a magnetizing feeling, and I yeah. just was very drawn to it. And I see over and over again when I talk to people how how that how it can affect them in that way. And there are other prayers like this, you know, in the in this sort of Hindu tradition, if you want to call it that. There are prayers to the goddess that we do during um, Devi Navratri, which is the nine days of um, dedication to the various aspects of the Divine Mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a book that's this big. <laughs> we chant it from morning till night for nine days. That's what we do. And um, that calls to certain people. There, are, I mean, there's just thousands and thousands of exceptional um, practices for people that you can just choose, you know, you just choose what works for you, that, as you were saying before. Mm-hmm. It's not limited. There's so much to choose from, and they all work if they if you do it. Yeah. And so you have to pick something that you like. So in my case, the Hanuman Chalisa, I was drawn to it, and like I told you, I learned it, which again, you don't have to learn. I'm going to say that because people ask me that question all the time. Um, when I went to India 
And I went to Neem Karoli Baba's ashram because I felt like I had to go to the place that had affected Krishnadas in this way, knowing also that Neem Karoli Baba was not in the body. Mm-hmm. But who is in the body, uh, and I was very fortunate to meet um, and have for many years now, is Siddhima. And Siddhima took care of Maharaji for 40 years, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji and was entrusted with the care of all the temples that were left behind. Mm. And um, when I went to Kenchi Maharaji's ashram in India, I I had darshan with her the first time. And because I was so longing to have a guru. That's a whole other thing. And... um, but, you know, at the time before I had even met her, I had talked to Krishnas about it. And he said, you know, you don't, a guru doesn't have to be in the body. And I was just irritated with him because he said, that's all fine for you to say because you did have one. And he said, exactly, I did. And when he left, it, it was brutal for me. Mm-hmm. When he left the body, it was just brutal. So anyway, that's another story. But I did go and I did meet Siddhima and... When I talked with her, and she gave us the practice of singing the Hanuman Chalisa when we were there. I had gone with a friend of mine. But over the years, anything that I've gone to her with, any troubles, anything that I wanted in my life to happen, or any negative things that I wanted it to go away, she said, chant the Hanuman Chalisa. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, Maharaji said that every, every syllable every word of the hanuman chalisa is maha mantra which is it has a has a transformative power of its own so it's a divine name each mm-hmm. word so the more you chant it the more it's going to help you from the inside you know but you have to do it mm-hmm. and not only that she said yeah you all memorized it very good but when you sit there and you start singing can you say you know you obviously you, i'm thinking it's just like meditating i'm still thoughts are coming through Oh, you know, has my daughter had her dinner? Or you know, all kinds of things are happening. Or this person's drumming is not in time. Or <laughs> my leg hurts. Or, 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 oh, I forgot to send that email this morning. Everything's happening at the same time. So she actually recommends that when I'm doing my own practice at home, this is not with the group necessarily, she said, read it. Read it. And so use all your senses to be mindful about what you're doing, like to bring your mind to one point. So read the words, think about also the meaning of the words. What are you singing about? What is the story that's coming through? Now, I also happen to be very interested in the sacred texts of India. So as a kid, when I went to my grandfather's house, I read them. I loved reading the Mahabharata and Ramayana. I still read them over and over again because they change you on the inside as well. And it just cultivates this feeling of devotion and dedication, which I think is so helpful for doing a practice. Mm. And also for just living your life better. It helps you to open your hearts to people and find your place in this world where you feel good. Mm. So uh, one of the things they do in Kenchi, also in the temple, is they actually sing the entire Ram Charit Manas for nine days. You know, it just goes, it's, and it's beautiful. You sit there. And you're hearing the story and you follow it. You know, we follow in English and follow the story and just kind of just get absorbed in it. Mm. Just get out of your mind from it. Just get absorbed in it and get into the leela, the story that's being told. And they say that, you know, 
if you start to listen to these stories, you never tire of them. And it's not the case with other stories. You don't tire of them because there is divinity, there's sacred power in these stories. Mm. And that's why we can hear them over and over again. Mm. What was your question? No, well, actually, that's beautiful. No, I would, I'll ask another question now, which is, <clears throat> you know, for those that are maybe not, I mean, people know Hanuman as the, the monkey-headed deity, but will you, take a, will you tell us a little bit of the story of Hanuman since you're talking about stories? Yeah. So he, the first time I heard of Hanuman, he appears um, as a being in the Ramayan. Mm -hmm. And also there was a retelling of the Ramayan. The Ramayan was originally written by Valmiki, and it was rewritten by um, a poet saint, named, so poet saint named Tulsidas. And it was then called the Ramcharitmanas, and it was rewritten in a a local language of the lay people, because mm. um, originally it was written in Sanskrit and not accessible to those who weren't scholars. But the, the version that I read was, you know, an English translation when I read it a while ago. But essentially, it's the story of the forces of positivity and negativity. I mean, if you really want to break it down. Yeah. Um, and they are manifested as beings, you know, supernatural beings. <laughs> there's an amazing demon named Ravan, and he's got ten heads, and he has all sorts of powers. Um, and, you know, if you get into the story, you start to realize his backstory is that he was actually uh, a being who had done so much incredible tapasya in his life, as, uh, and that is practice, that he was granted a boon, that if he came back in his next life as a demon and served the leela of Ram, the telling of the story of Ram, then he would have no more births and he would be liberated and would exit from the cycle of birth. Wow. So he comes into this story as a demon, a demon who needs to be vanquished by the divine being in the form of Vishnu who and all the gods actually decide that they need to have um, an avatar or an incarnation of the divine being on in our plane so that we could restore dharma, so that the balance between the forces of good and evil would be restored. Mm. So Ram incarnates as a, as a king or a prince, and the way it's told in the Indian stories that the, the, the trinity, which is Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, they also have the feminine aspects of them, right? So there's Shiva and Shakti. So in the same way, uh, Vishnu's consort is Lakshmi. So when she gets reincarnated, when they, when they come down into this plane with us, they come in as Ram, and then Sita is his feminine aspect. Mm -hmm. Some people also talk about how Ram... Uh, symbolizes the one supreme being or the Paramatman mm -hmm. and Sita symbolizes the individual soul mm. because what happens in the story of the Ramayana is that Ram and Sita get separated, separated. Yeah. and they're separated because Ravan basically kidnaps Sita and takes her so the forces of negativity pull her away mm. from being with the one now the one that brings them back together, even though Ram can do anything, is Hanuman. Mm -hmm. And Hanuman is the one who is in service of Ram fully. 
Um, you know, he talks about himself as, you know, if you ask me who I am and I identify with my body, I say that I am in service to you. He's talking to Ram. If I identify with my soul, I think about, I, I, I find myself as a part of you. When I don't think about myself at all, I am you. I am one with you. So he's, he is the, he is talked and spoken about and praised, and this is what we talk about in the Hanuman Chalisa, as being fully connected with the divine presence. Um, Krishna's, in his book and CD called Flow of Grace, he talks about um, flow of grace. So it's, it's, it's the, the flow in which we want to enter, the, the flow of a compassionate being that joins us back with the one when we feel separated. He also has superpowers, mm -hmm. which we all have too. Mm -hmm. And so he's super strong, he can change shape, he's very brave, he's wise, um, considerate and compassionate of all beings and can fulfill any task. So often these are qualities that we want to invoke in ourselves because we need it to get through the day. So on a very basic level, we remind ourselves as we do him in the in the prayer about these qualities and enter into the space as we do the prayer. And again, I can say this, and it sounds weird, like why would we want to enter into the space of a being that looks like a monkey? What is that about? You just have to do it, you know, and know what that feels like. And there are people who hear the Hanuman Chalisa, know nothing about the story of Hanuman or Ram or Sita or anybody, and feel something. Mm -hmm. So there's something in there mm. for some people. Mm. Mm. So at the end of the day, Hanuman does find Sita, and he does his part, and he brings Ram over to fight the battle with uh, Ravan and the negative forces, and Sita is, is rejoined with him. That's the very short version of the story, and there are lots of different things that happen after that and before that in the middle of it all. And um, he's, con you know, he, in the story, he's considered to be eternal. So he never really leaves us and we always have access to him. And if he's the one who connects Sita to Ram, then he will connect us to Ram as well. So, And, his, and the connection is, <clears throat> is that he represents, as you were saying, devotion. So the idea, the reason why, or, you know, the allegorical reason why he returns Sita to Ram is because the idea is that the way the individual soul gets back to the Paramatman, gets back to that experience of unity, is via the experience of devotion. Is that, is that yeah. the right way of looking at it? Yeah. I mean, very simply, we have to turn in that direction. Yeah. We have to really be turned in that direction and we're looking and that's how we can go down the right path. Mm. And in this tradition, it's, a, it's bhakti yoga, if you want to call it that. Yeah. It's yeah. a tradition of, of devotion, of heart opening. Yeah. And through that heart opening we, and doing the practices, we gain wisdom. It's not just knowledge. It's not what we read. We, we have an internal experience that steers us in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as far as the literal meaning of the Hanuman Chalisa, is, is, it the is it that story or is it something else? It's part of the story. It's, it's very the story. much the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it was written by the same uh, poet saint, Tulsidas, 
um, he wrote the Hanuman Chalisa. So if you start to read the lines, you know, but it starts off, the opening verse talks about how when we bow at the feet of the Guru, only then can we, the, the dust, the pollen-like dust of the feet of the Guru is what's going to polish the mirror of our hearts. Because the mirror of our hearts are obscured. By doing these practices, we clean the mirror of our hearts so we can truly reflect our own inner nature that's there for us. We just can't connect with it. Yeah. So it starts with that. So we set the intention before we even start singing to Hanuman. We're talking about accessing our own inner guru mm. by doing these practices. The, the, the Chalisa itself, the words of the Hanuman Chalisa are describe his um, his activities, a lot of the stuff that he does in the Ramayana as well. It describes his physical qualities, his courage, his wisdom, his intelligence, his dedication, his devotion. And then it also tells us that when we turn toward Hanuman, difficult things in our life become easier to deal with. Mm. Um, there's so many ver verses like this that so they keep so in the middle of the prayer while you're singing all his praises it's like well this is why we're doing it we're reminding you you know again so that's how the way the prayer is written and at the very end of the prayer we invite Hanuman to come live in our hearts mm -hmm. along with Ram and Sita as well so what happens over time and what's happened for me in doing in doing the practice is it is, and it continues, and it has not really changed. It really is the destination for me. Sometimes it's so hard to even sit down to do your practice, that even if you can just sit down to do it like you're there already. It's also the path to where we want to go. It's a refuge. It's what I call upon any time something, something is good, if I feel great, grateful for something, and it's just going on all the time. Things are difficult. Sometimes I need to get through a hard time. I'll sit down and say, I'm going to do a block of these. And, and it'll change me. Mm. And I think it's not just me. I think it happens to anybody the moment you try to do. And the other thing is, is that, you know, you can't wait until things, times are difficult in order to do practice. Right. As you do it regularly, you're building your strength. Yeah. And then suddenly when things happen, you realize, oh, I'm going to react differently to this situation because... You already have fortified yourself. Yeah. Um, and then you can, you know, you can use it again in that way. So it's so many things. Mm. So many things. Yeah. So the, you know, and we've sort of touched on this a little bit, and I and I know you um, you had mentioned that that Krishna Das has a certain a certain ideas about this. So, and then you mentioned that you think about it a little differently. So I'm curious about um, the the status of the meaning because right. So we're we're chanting the text, and as you've said, people are called to the sound of it, and so someone could engage with the like theoretically, someone could chant the Hanuman Chalisa and never have read it meaning right Correct. so do you think it's do you think it's important does it augment you know does it increase the experience of the practice to know what it means or is there a certain way in which maybe it's important not to be so hung up on the meaning of the words yeah i think it can go both ways mm. um a lot of the reason i think it and it also depends on where you are in your practice yeah um, i don't think there's a prescription necessarily about what's the best way to do it but 
Krishnadas at first didn't want to sing the Hanuman Chalisa because he didn't want people to have to be looking at a piece of paper and get distracted by the words, and am I not getting the words right? This is too hard, and then you yeah. just kind of... So call and response kirtan is easier in that way because you don't really have to do much but kind of stay centered and, and keep coming back to the names that you're chanting. But, you know, as Siddhima said to me, she said, you know, you've got to read it because after a while, once you know it, it just starts to happen by rote. You can, I can sing a hundred of them and not be paying attention at all. I doubt that, though. <laughs> if, you can, if you can sit and do a hundred of them in a row, it starts to pull you in definitely, for yeah. sure, and we do that a lot. So, um, But for me, I found it very helpful for my concentration practice. Mm. Um, I found it very helpful to come back. And, you know, some people are... I have a friend who's a very visual kind of person, and the learning of the language was a difficult thing for her. So what she did was... She's an artist, so she took, um, for each of the phrases, she made a, a, a picture of what the phrase meant. Oh, wow. So as she was reading it, she's just looking at the picture, and then she knows what she, even though word for word she doesn't know what it is, she understood what the meaning was of what she was singing. Wow. And that ended up being helpful for a lot of people, so now she's actually published it, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. So um, I think everything that you can do to concentrate is a good thing. Mm. And when I say concentrate, I mean really focus on the practice and try to let the thoughts just, if they're going to come, go. And if they start to enter, they kind of just go away. Yeah. And But not to even think about that. The more you focus on the, concentrate on what you're doing, and you develop the strength to do it better more and more as you go along. Mm. So um, I think it is important, actually, to know the meanings. Ultimately, when, you know, once you get into it, if you, if you feel like that's interesting to you, I think it's worth getting to know what it means. Well, it, it almost seems like what you're saying is that it's sort of the, the meaning becomes sort of a deeper layer. So you kind of you encounter, yeah. you encounter the, the pure kind of vibratory nature of the practice and you, yeah. and you repeat. And then like as your practice deepens, you know, it, it will sort of move you in the direction of kind of knowing the story and... And that yeah. adds a layer to, to what you're saying, like an, an additional kind of way of, of connecting to the practice. So yeah. that's that's great. Um, I have now I want to shift gears like quite a bit. I want to end on I, I've noticed actually in, in a lot of these episodes is that I always end on a political question. So I'm actually going to shift to the political question before my last question, which will be about uh, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, which I think will be a nice way to end uh, the interview. So my question is is about you know given that you are um, a native Indian you grew up at least for part of your life in India, and yeah. the 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 question especially recently of the cultural appropriation of of yogic practice um, by the West has become very heated and and there's a lot of people that feel you know. Uh, uh, feel very strongly one way or another, you know, from going from the extreme of, you know, Westerners shouldn't be practicing this at all. This is an Indian, um, purely Indian practice to, you know, to the complete other side of that, that this is a universal practice and, and nobody owns it. So, um, but, and, and of course, there's a gray area in there about the way in which yoga, and I'm thinking immediately of, you know, Instagram yoga teachers who are, you know, maybe, um, 
their whole Instagram feed is them, you know, doing naked yoga. And this might be extremely offensive to, to someone who considers this to be, you know, the, the heritage of their own cultural tradition. So, so I know there's a lot of space for, for discussion in there. So I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on it. If you have any, um, positions, you know, on this whole kind of wider debate of, of, of what we're doing in the West when we're taking these ancient practices and sort of making them our own. Yeah. Well, I'm happy that it came to the West because mm-hmm. if it hadn't, I would never have heard it from Krishnadas yeah. and I would have never learned the Hanuman Chalisa. So for me, I think, first of all, <clears throat> I don't think of it as a cultural thing. Yeah. Let me yeah. just say that. So I, I don't think about it that way at all. Um, and my experience has been my experience has been that you know when I I went to India with Krishnadas and he was he you know, he had been asked so many times to chant in India and he kept saying why would they want me to chant you know because that's where he brought the you know that's where he learned how to do it yeah and he said why would they want to chant with me but here's the thing my understanding of it is is that there even though it's you know it's a tradition that's steeped in this culture for you know thousands of years by westernizing a lot of the the essential bhava the feeling behind the practices had, went away mm. and so a lot of indians might be doing the practice completely by rote mm. and not fully engaging with the spirit of what the practice is and so what happened with um with someone like Krishnadas, because he went into the chanting in a way that was deeply spiritual. I mean, it was it, it was what he needed to do to help himself. You know, yeah. he was he 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 realized it was sacred and it was changing him. So he brings that into the chant. And so what happens is, you know, you're floating down a boat on the Ganga in 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 Varanasi, and the priest on the boat is playing Krishnadas's Onama Shivaya because. <laughs> It has a feeling that people can can identify with in this day and day and age, you know. Um, so, do I think it's appropriation? I would never use that word yeah. ever. Yeah. I mean, I think it's honored, and and people understand what a beautiful practice it is. Of course, you know, I don't know about naked yoga. I, I honestly <laughs> have no comment on that. I don't have any comment on that. I think that. Social media is a whole other thing. But I will say about yoga in general, like the physical practice of yoga, when I grew up in India, the only person I knew who practiced yoga was this one Swami who was on TV and uh, swallowed a piece of cloth and like cleaned out his intestines like this. And I was like, okay, I'm not doing that. (laughs) So I had to come to New York and learn here what yoga was. And now as I go back to India, because it's become so popular in the West, women of my generation who grew up without it are now practicing yoga. Mm-hmm. So there's no, I mean, I think that as long as the practice is done with reverence mm-hmm. to the original traditions, there's something to be said for tradition. Yeah. The reason why it's lasted all these years is because it's sacred in a particular way. And this is why I love to learn from teachers who honor that. You know, if you if you go and study uh, Buddhism from from Bob Thurman, you 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 know you watch the way in which he's 
he 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 reveres the teachings. You know, it's not like he's you know, he's teaching them and they're, you know, I'm going to share it with the whole world. It's not that at all. He lets it, he bows down to them, and then they come through him in a way. Mm-hmm. And there are many teachers like that. We just have to find the right teacher. Yeah. You know? I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's actually maybe more specifically what I was, what I was sort of pointing to is that, uh-huh. and it seems like what you're saying is that the more, the more problematic you know, you wouldn't use the word appropriation, but, you know, we'll just use it for the sake of the discussion. The more problematic forms of appropriation are the ones that sort of try to shirk themselves of the tradition or try to, you -hmm. know, just do the practices and ignore the tradition or, or a kind of, you know, divorce the, the physical practice from the philosophical teachings. Is that, is that a little more what you would take issue? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't take issue with any of it. I think that if you do yoga, good for you. If your body feels good, I'm happy. Yeah. You know, because it's better than not doing yoga, for example. Yeah. Um, It's just the question of whether you want to go deeper into the practice or not. Yeah. So maybe it's not for everybody to go deeper in the practice. That maybe just spending an hour a day breathing, making, you know, your body feel beautiful and strong is good enough. Okay. Fine. Let that be so. I don't, I don't, I really don't. I just don't happen to be interested in it. That's all. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, I saw a video of uh, some naked yoga going on the other day. (laughs) And I I was, I just don't get it. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. I just don't get it. So fine, if people like it, fine. Yeah. But I mean, if if I took it back to India and I showed it to some people there, I mean, I don't need to. Everything's on social media, so I'm sure everything's being seen by everybody all the time. But mm-hmm. there are people who practice in the purest, cleanest form with the best intentions of going deeper and deeper into the heart. Mm-hmm. And if you can find that teacher and that tradition, I would say go down that road. Mm-hmm. That's a great because then ultimately those people are you know this generation is going to be the next level of teachers. Yeah, so we don't want to lose that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great and very diplomatic answer. I like your way of just you know this is this doesn't work this doesn't work for me, but I don't judge it. It's you know whatever whatever is connecting people with whatever they feel they need to connect to. That's that's beautiful. So yeah. now let's end on a, a really you know uh, the note of. Because you do uh, have a guru, but you have a relationship with a guru that is not alive. Um, and, yeah. and so I want to kind of explore that just a little bit as a way of closing um, and, and, and just ask you kind of, what is, what is that experience like? You know, what is, it, what is that relationship with a being that is no longer embodied? I think over time, I mean, I... It's hard to talk about it in words, I, I suppose. Um, it's like trying to describe, you know, let's not talk about like gurus in human body form, but even just deities, like who is Lakshmi, who is yeah. Saraswati, who is Krishna. You know, over time, I find that they're kind of an energetic force. Mm-hmm. And we've given it a name, or they we've been given names for these, their transmissions, transmitted names. We've been given visual depictions of these either in the form of in a human form or as yantras for example you've seen the geometric patterns um and those are all representations of forces of energetic forces which we can tune into and which are a part of us as well so 
In the same way, it seems to me that when gurus, they say that you don't find the guru, the guru finds you. This mm. is what they say. And I definitely had that experience when I heard Krishnadas chanting. You know, if you ask him anything about his chanting, recently he, uh, he made this, he said this, and I thought it was the best quote ever. He said, I do karaoke all the time. I open my mouth and he sings. He being the big hymn, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba. And he believes that. You know, he calls himself the rusty pipe through which the music is, is sung. And I know that when I heard Krishnadas, I was pulled towards Neem Karoli Baba, which is why I was like, I want to go to Kenchi. Even though he's not alive anymore, I need to go to the temple. And it was only later that um, just before when he finally said, oh, okay, okay, you can go. Because he doesn't think that we, everyone needs to go to India. Yeah. You know, we can tap into this presence right here where we are. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to go. So he told me where Kenchi was, and he also told me about Siddhima. And I was very keen to, to meet her and have her darshan. And when I met her, uh, I wanted so much to feel that she was my guru. Like I wanted a person in the body. Mm -hmm. My experience of her, though, as I saw her, was the same feeling of presence I had when I first sang with Krishnadas, mm -hmm. which he calls Maharaji. So these are just names that we've attached to them. Now, that feeling, that space that I enter into, I've also had reading stories of Ananda Maima mm. or Raman Marshi or going to Shirdi Sai Baba temple. You know, none of these people are in, they're not, these beings are in the body anymore. Yeah but their presence is there. And if we can understand and accept that they're there, then the more we do these practices, the more we can enter into that presence. And that then serves as your guru. Your life, your experience, every time you encounter that is going to be your guru, your inner guru. Mm. That being said, I did develop a relationship with Siddhima, you know, it's, I've been seeing her now for 21 years and I go pretty much every year to see her. So I see her as my, as my immediate guru in the form, but she sits inside Maharaji and Maharaji sits inside Hanuman and Hanuman sits inside the universal mm. presence. You know, they're just all different ways to access the same space mm -hmm. and that being said, you know, we should, if we want to find a teacher, like if you want to talk about guru as a teacher, like a spiritual teacher who gives you practices and who studied in a certain way or has tapped into those spaces and, and is a mentor or a guide, go for it, you know, trust in them and, and make sure that you trust in them and, and, and that you feel at ease. Well, you may not feel at ease because they do put you to the test sometimes, but you know, you have the faith that that's where you want to be. That's great. Mm -hmm. So initially I used to argue with Krishnas about, well, you can say I don't need a guru because you got one. And you can always go back to the stories of being with him. But we can always go back to remembering those feelings of feeling connected. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. anybody, any place, anything, and our own inner selves. That's our guru. 
as far as I can see. I love the way that you described um, sort of the way you described being sort of in within Maharaji, like the yeah. almost like nested in like a little what are they called those Russian dolls? The I know, you know that's what I, mean? what I called them once. Yeah, the Russian nesting dolls. But I, yeah. but I love that because and I and I, the the reason it sort of touched me is because uh, recently I heard someone speak about. They were saying, you know, a lineage of gurus is a lineage of students. You know, we're all, they were all mm. students, and they're all stu- and that that lineage of students just goes up and up until you know what can you speak of as the the guru is the the absolute, the paramatman, right? So everyone yeah. is a student, and and I like that way of thinking about it because it sort of takes the you know, for those that are uncomfortable with this, like, notion of the guru, if you can see the guru as well as a student that just keeps going along this line of students, it sort of makes it seem more, I don't know, there's something more graspable about it. Um, well, I mean, if you, if you study in the Buddhist tradition, you know, the Buddha mm-hmm. was a student. Yeah. And then he came out to being a teacher once he went through, you know, all his practices. And ultimately, in these teachings, the idea is that as long as we do the practices, that's we can all be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A fully open, compassionate heart, at ease with everything. Um, when I first heard that, I thought, wow, okay, wait. This is intense. This is almost, you know, too much to handle. And I once, I remember I was talking to my therapist and he said, I was talking about Siddhi Mahan, and he said, well, you know, you can be her. And I said, what? And it almost felt like, that, that's that's blasphemy. How could I say such a thing? But that is it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's ultimately where we're all heading. I don't know how long it's going to take. <laughs> how many lifetimes, if you believe in that sort of thing, which mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like the only way. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have to do this over and over again until we get there. Yeah. And they say that these gurus that appear in the body to us, you know, these are bodhisattvas. These are beings who are here to help us and they will remain here until every last being is liberated yeah yeah well that's a beautiful note to end on thank you so much nina for this wonderful conversation so um just to close if you want to share a little bit about um any projects that you're working on or retreats coming up or workshops or hanuman chalisa oh, jams that you want to Jams. share. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, um, let's see. I have a very exciting retreat coming up mm-hmm. because excitement for me is to chant all day. Yeah. <laughs> this is what it's come to. So I'm doing a retreat um, up at Krupalu, which is in Massachusetts. And we're going to do what's called the o- immersion in the ocean of chant. Mm. So it's from Friday to Sunday. We'll have some yoga practice as well. And I have um, another favorite chanter of mine, Devdas, who's going to also be uh, presenting with me. And our idea is to expose everyone coming to the retreat to a variety of practices Mm. and to really immerse in them. Like we're going to spend all our time chanting. We'll talk a little bit about the background of the, about the practices, but the idea is to create the space where we sit together and we do this and really like sink into it as much as we can. So we're going to do Hanuman Chalisa's prayers to the goddess, the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. We're going to do Shiva Puja, like all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's as a retreat, you don't have to think about, you know, your daily life. So you've got food prepared for you, comfortable room. And that's, a, that's happening from June 23rd to 25th. 
Um, other than that, you know, I'm always singing here and there. And it's, uh, you can find it on ninaraochant.com. Mm-hmm. That's my website. And I'm working on my new album. Amazing. When is yeah, that going to be released? It's going to be released in, um, I'm hoping, winter of next year, so like January. Okay. So I just started recording this weekend. So by the time we get through it, it'll probably be January once it's all mixed. Mm. So that's the, that's the project. And if you ever want to chant 108 Hanuman Chalisas, you do yeah. that You do that twice. Is it twice a year? It's for Hanuman's birthday mm-hmm. and for New Year's? We don't do it 108 times on Hanuman's birthday. Okay. We might do it 11 times or so. Um, but the big event is always on January 1st. Yeah. And we do it in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, last couple of years, we've been doing it at Tibet House. Yeah, I was there last kind year. Kind of amazing. Yeah. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. Yeah. Well, oh. not for not for all 108. I was there for about 12 of them. <laughs> okay. That's, I'm, gonna, that's I'm working up to it. It might take me about three more New, year, New Year's Eves or New Year's Days to get okay. there. <laughs> Yeah, so January 1st, we do that. And that also will, that information is on my website when that comes up. Excellent. And it's a full day of nonstop Hanuman Chalisa Jam, as yeah. you say. Yeah, and if you're not in New York, you can actually stream that, right? You do it on YouTube yep. Live. We do a free live stream for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. All right, Nina, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, too. all right, I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Yeah. Uh-huh.